Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast, where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules and enhance your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwake and a Dungeon Master myself. And today, we're here to talk to you about numbers versus explosions, aka story versus math. So, Dungeons and Dragons has a lot of both of those things in it, but where to find the balance between the two or whether you do lean towards one or the other is just yet another aspect of how to run a game that is worth consideration. So, when we do say those two things, Nathan, what are we really talking about? So, when we're comparing the two, what we're really talking about is how do you choose to um, have certain things decided by so would you rather go for a more um numeral approach where you roll for it or something along those lines or use like clear logic to see if it works that kind of thing and explosions would mean that's cool let's do that sometimes in entirely um in some cases you just ignore uh the possible like some aspects that might seem difficult and just shove it under the bed and be okay with Indeed. So to give one example, then the party fights the big, bad, evil guy and you, you know, whittle him down. Someone in the party is unconscious and finally someone gets the, you know, fatal blow. Do you either a you deal eight points of damage? They are dead. Well done. Or, you know, the rogue slashes their dagger across the bad guy's throat. They fall to their knees. You stare them in the eye as you twist the dagger through their neck. Like, do you have it just be by the numbers or do you add that little bit of extra rule of cool? Like, mechanically speaking, you know, let's say it's a rogue with the dagger doesn't have extra attack, but the bad guy is dying. And you just want to let them have that little extra moment to make it awesome. So it could really also kind of be summarized by just do you allow the rule of cool or do you specifically just stick to these are the rules and that is that. And exactly how to balance that is, as always, up to the dungeon master. Uh, But if a player does want to just try something and just narrate a thing that they do, that is also a thing to be encouraged that a lot of the time just players often don't do that. So anytime that they are willing to do such a thing, let them just yes and the situation. So we're we've got a couple of points that we just want to touch on about how to go through this type of thinking. So the first big topic of discussion for this would be the critical hit, because rules as written, fifth edition critical hits kind of boring. All that it is, is the weapon damage dice are doubled, which Sure, supremely helpful, and that's nice, more damage. But, I mean, even if, oh, wow, instead of doing 2d6 plus 5, I get to do 4d6 plus 5. That's it? Like, I don't get to do anything or say anything or nothing cool happens? And that is a really common response in 5th edition from, again, both players and dungeon masters alike. So, there are many, many 
many, many, many tables and just lists that have been created to add effects to critical hits as well as critical fail failures, to be fair, where something else can happen, something, you know, you, you know, concuss them and they lose a, perm a permanent point of intelligence or, you know, you blind them in one eye or, you know, you slice off, uh, you know, the fingers of their left hand, just... Shit happens to a critical hit to make it more impactful. By rules as written, that is not at all part of the rules. But at the same time, a critical hit is supposed to be a fuck yeah kind of moment. So there is that desire to have there be something else. Your take? So when I deal with critical hits, actually the way I um, do it is less mechanical in which I don't use tables and stuff, I just take the normal rules, but the way I represent a critical hit is what it says on the tin, a critical hit. So you hit somewhere that's critical. So what that can give you is basically like a case where you can be like, I shoot at the enemy in a certain spot, or you stab the enemy in a certain spot. And that's about as far as I take it on the show, but uh, one way that you could make it more interesting is where you could have a player try to make use of this critical attack in a certain way that you could be like, the player decides to, I'm going to go for his uh, heal or the, what do you call that bit that's behind your Achilles knee? Whatever. Tendon? Yeah, yeah, Achilles tendon, and then I slash at it or something. And if, if you're going for a lot more uh, narrative sort of a combat sequence and are less reliant on the hard numbers and um, that kind of thing, you could you can actually have combat be a lot more free form in that way where you can have people make decisions and stuff and make use of the full power of imagination and D&D to allow for multiple strategies and uh, at, at the moment whenever they want to do it. So yeah, that's one of the benefits of do, do, uh, going with a more narrative approach to combat at times is that you can have a lot cooler and more diverse combat encounters um, when you want it. Yep, and honestly, this is one of those kind of odd scenarios where I am a fan of both of these things. My love of numbers is well known at this point, but I am also a pyromaniac, so explosions also good. So I actually do take both of these into account for my own games. So obviously I do also have a love of charts. So I do have my own critical hit tables where if a crit happens, then something additional can as well. So there actually are, yet again, in that optional rules section in the Dungeon Master's Guide that I do love ever so much, there is a section on wounds in combat where they can have something like uh, leg injury. You know, their speed is reduced until they receive healing magic, which is a cool way to do it because it creates a mechanical penalty to the person who is hit and at the same time, because it's just until they receive healing magic. Normally, a leg wound takes a long time to heal, but in a world where healing magic exists, that gives the out in case you're, you have this happen to a PC, where then that player character who is injured temporarily, as soon as they get healing magic, are okay and then lose the penalty. And that is a honestly really cleverly designed balance to using that type of system. To just have the normal, you know, weeks to months long wounds that people can get to have that simply last until you receive healing magic. 
So then you can have, you know, the explanation in game for, wait a minute, so why are there all these, you know, pirates that have lost an eye or just people who are missing a hand out in the world when PCs, as written, have no mechanic for actually getting injured at all? It is just they're immune completely to injury and, you know, non-magical diseases. Like, it just, it just doesn't happen in D&D. So I am a huge fan of using wound mechanics in general. And a critical hit is the perfect way to mix that into things. Because, you know, if there is a critical hit, then you just roll on one of the tables available. And then you can just see, you know, okay, you know, cripple their leg, cripple, you know, their weapon arm or their non-weapon arm, you know, concussion, like I mentioned, there are so many ways that you can just implement such things because there's a lot of bad things that can be done to a human body and by using that in game i think is awesome and not to mention that it makes a critical hit feel that much more important to have that you know the benefit of both to have that rule of cool that just can be that much more however there is something that I do want to heavily caution slash warn for doing such thing, which is, do you as a DM implement rules just for the PCs or do you implement rules to the world? So what I mean by that, do the PCs get the ability to do this on critical hits or does everyone in the world get that on a critical hit? So in the event of the party getting critical hit, do you also use that against them? My own vote is to say yes. What do you think? So the way I see it is that that's actually quite useful and I think that Definitely, I would use a system like that if I like if I was using it for the PCs. I would let it work the other way. So, one thing I do feel about uh, injuries and stuff uh, with a lot of these kinds of things, you need to think about what kind of feel you want the world to have. So, one thing that could be fun to do is a more grounded, more realistic, more gritty kind of um, game where injuries last longer than they do in a typical D&D game. Um, combat is dangerous uh, and like a single misstep could kill you. And I, I feel like if you were to use that with a more frequent kind of injury system, you could really create a sort of add to that kind of setting and that kind of feel. And that's really what, at the end of the day, this is all about, where you need to have your rules and stuff match up with what you want to portray your setting and the feel of the setting as. Indeed. And just to kind of play devil's advocate with myself, so how you think about hit points in game is actually another thing worth consideration. So there actually is a little bit written on the topic in the books, but all that it says is that hit points are just a representation of damage that you receive and that it's just when you get to zero hit points that you are unconscious. However, just a thing that I have thought about just because I think that it's neat is to actually have hit points be an actual in-world mechanic. So I already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Have you ever heard of an anime called Ruby? Yes. Really? Yes. Oh, I'll be damned. Just that Have you ever I, seen I, it? I, I tried. Yeah, I've tried to watch the first episode, but I was like, oh, this is um, fucking disgusting looking. <laughs> and so it's, I don't watch the rest it's, of it. It's own animation style. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. But anyway, the point that I'm getting at, though, is that the mechanic that is like how combat works in their world 
is that they have a quantifiable amount of energy in them called aura. And then when their aura is expended fully and breaks, then they are able to be injured. And that actually just is a lot like how hit points are kind of said to work. So the players would then just have an internal energy And then as they grow in skill, they have more of this available. And then that allows them to shrug off wounds. And then that would be an in-world explanation of why player characters and adventurers generally don't get those kinds of wounds. That they will only get wounded if they are knocked unconscious. And then you could just have wounds be at zero hit points, then the, you know, the barrier breaks. And then, you know, whatever is being done to them might wound them. So it's only if you get knocked to zero hit points that a wound could happen. And honestly, that's just how I personally like to think about hit points, just that it it does kind of line up nicely for why this isn't such a thing in game. So then it's not a critical hit related, but just when someone gets knocked out is the potential for a wound to happen. And that just lines up nicely because it makes sense that magic users have all of their energy devoted to being able to expel, you know, energy in the form of spells and damage and that their own body is less reinforced. But a physical character like a fighter will have a lot more of that devoted internally to defense, which is why fighters have so many more hit points. Like it, it's something that actually just does kind of line up logically in my brain to explain why things are the way they are. So again, we are titling this numbers versus explosions, but they are not mutually exclusive, mutually exclusive concepts. And having that merge of them in a way that is satisfactory to you is absolutely the ideal that I want to shoot for in talking about this subject. Uh, just to give my throat a break while I take a drink, uh, do you want to introduce the next bit? Okay, so let's talk about a different aspect of uh, this idea. So when I created the Vetrum, like the core uh, argument to why Vetrum is even an issue for Dust, I basically thought of the implications of the rip. And the way I thought of it was Big Rock hit water, Big Water hit Vetrum. And so that's pretty much what I imagined. I always imagine and create things from the perspective of people. So um, when you, when I was thinking of it, I was like thinking, I'm here at the coastline, chilling, and you just see, you just have this earthquake kind of sensation, uh, and everything is shaking, and then suddenly it stops for a while, and then you see something often in the distance, like a movement on the horizon, and you're like, what's that? And it just grows and grows into a massive fucking wave that you're like, oh, damn. And essentially, the wave comes, you're flung about, and presumably will drown and die, or get uh, you're hit against something and die through that process. And that's the way I saw how the wave that hit Vetrum was like. However, uh, when I passed <laughs> that along to Remy, when we were working on the uh, uh, concept, arc, yeah, the, the arc 1.5 or the Vetrum arc, well, you know what happened, Remy. I mathed. I did all the fucking math. So again, I love math. 
And I fell just down a rabbit hole of just, oh, I didn't know about this topic. So I just started researching into like how tsunamis work. How big was the largest tsunami ever recorded? What are the causes of tsunamis? So I started just getting interested in the subject. So I actually just studied up a lot on how tsunamis work, mechanically speaking, in the real world, and then how I would adapt that into D&D. So I actually just did the study of, okay, so I got information from Nathan of what is the landmass of Darst? How far down is the point at which Darst appeared? So then I calculated what would then be the mass of the displacement of water. And then using the that along with the I thought that, okay, so it appears near instantaneously to instantly displace a massive quantity of water. So using that at the distance that I also got from Nathan from where Darst appeared to the coastline, how big would wave, would said wave be? And then also to know, oh, so that also allows me and Nathan to know that based on this placement, where is the wave worst? Where is the wave less bad because it's farther away and has more room to spread out and dissipate? So I did the math to calculate, okay, so at the point of from here in Darst to there, where we had the Vetrum campaign begin, using that distance and displacement, I did the math to try to calculate, okay, so exactly how tall would said wave be? So I actually did the math to find out exactly how tall the wave would be at the point that appeared at Vetrum. Was that necessary? Hell no. Did I have fun doing it? Hell yes. Did the party give a damn at all that I did this math? Not a bit, but I had fun. (laughs) Oh man, that was a good time. I really did enjoy doing that one. But anyway, the point that we're trying to make by giving that uh, Remy rant once again is that from the story perspective, all that was necessary, big wave hits here is bad. But I wanted to just know how tall would the wave be? So I just wanted to know for honestly, mostly for my own sake, how survivable would that wave be? Because, again, I like thinking about the math and the hit points of characters, so I wanted to know, am I creating a situation where it's bullshit for anyone to survive, and that it would just have killed everyone, but would there be a way for the characters to survive such a thing? And then I actually built the pre-gen versions of the characters before the players ever saw it to have ways to make it logical for them to have survived. So to have access to something like the fly spell to go over things or to have access to water breathing and, you know, potentially something to bunker up behind to deal with the bludgeoning damage aspect of things. So that was actually something that I thought about for each of the player characters available in that game. But I'm actually fairly confident that even you, Nathan, didn't realize that I actually gave them ways to survive and just hand waved it at the PCs. Of course they did. But that's not how I roll. Fair point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, though, like, did that ever occur to you that, like, I did give the characters all a way to have survived? Not really. (sighs) Yeah, fair enough. So, again, this is just one area where Nathan and I just have just different thought processes, not even just opinions on what is necessary, but just we flat out do think differently about the what's and the why's of the game. And just that I wanted to have it be in character reasons for them to have survived the catastrophe that hit that coastline. While, again, that's really not necessary because the 
there is always the DM power of hand wavium, where shit happens because I said so. And that is honestly a really important part of DM power is that ability to just say it happens this way because that's how I want the story to go. But just with the way that my brain works, I like to think about the why as well as just the what. So actually another example then from the Vetrum game, the episode that we we labeled as the slog. It was not supposed to be a slog. It is just a series of events where the players did not do what I expected them to. So they stumbled through, what was it, a six hour recording of something like that? Yeah, where they just kept trying and trying to just get through massive, massive numbers of undead. However, I could have handled that a lot differently from the DM side of things because I built a massive map in Roll20 to play the game through and I had literally thousands of undead tokens that the party had to navigate through. And this was one point where I leaned far too far to the numbers side of things. The much smarter way to have handled that situation would just be to just describe narratively, you know, the party ventured treacherously through the undead for weeks trying to just keep the civilians that they were escorting safe and you know maybe just play like a skirmish here and there but not to actually have you know a miles long map with thousands of undead like i very much should have zoomed it out much 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 farther than i actually did to make it a more narrative type of encounter because just because i want there to be massive numbers in play does not mean that they literally physically have to be in play on the map so that is somewhere where i fully acknowledge i could have done that better all right last up we've got another kind of fun thought experiment What the fuck do you do when players ask you for something that does not have an explicit rule? So when they make a more odd type of request, Nathan, have at it. So the way I would handle an instance where the player chooses to do something more, more odd is I'll find a check that is tangentially related if possible and I'll just get the player to explain to me how they exactly want to do the thing. So sometimes when a sudden idea catches my fancy, I may or may not just straight up do the following. I will go and let the player do the thing if I feel like it's good. So if it's if the idea is a bit uh, crazy and stuff, it's fine because as long as it makes sense within the world and it's possible for the player to do, and if I feel it's within reasonable means, that that's the main criteria for um, whether I let the player do it without a check. Um, I let the player do it. And at times, one fun thing I like to do uh, when, it, when it comes to checks, this is slightly uh, related, but not exactly uh, the same thing. Um, I like to play around with the idea that not all critical fails are bad. And one thing, the other thing I like to do is not all critical successes are good either. So one example was uh, when Caden was, uh, Tarquin was uh, attacking, like, no, sorry, uh, he was stealing the ball from the cart that the thieves took and he critically failed. 
I explained it away as him being nonchalant and nobody so being the wiser. He got a one on his sleight of hand check. So Nathan made the choice to just kind of reinterpret that. There was no sleight of hand involved in the situation. He just confidently walked up, took an item off the cart, and just walked away as if he knew where he was going. So it was a really clever way to kind of fail forwards. That was a fun moment. But yeah, so the the point though is just because something is rolled on the die doesn't mean that it is automatically a particularly good or bad situation. So another just way that I've seen that used is that, you know, you might roll a 20 on an attack roll against some bad guy that you might have wanted to knock out. But, you know, you might choose to interpret that as a 20 being a perfect strike that you slip through the rings of his armor and stab him right through the heart and he dies uh personally that one i am less fond of but i can't deny that such actions can certainly have their place in the world but generally speaking i would prefer having it be the fail forward rather than hurting a success so yeah you can make a bad thing happen on a 20 but having just the plot go forward when a one is rolled is by far the preferred option of how to go about it And also just on the topic of critical fails, there is one more point that I would like to make about those, which is the fact that a lot of people who do use critical success and critical fail tables often have an option where if a critical fail is rolled, then you accidentally attack an ally instead of the target that you were aiming for. This is annoyingly common, and please don't do that. Just just don't do that. It's one thing to have it be where, you know, your bow misfires and you accidentally hurt yourself. But to cause harm to another player character because of an unfortunate role, I find to just be incredibly rude. So obviously I don't have any power to stop other people from doing such things, but I do heartily recommend, please don't do that. Having the player accidentally hurt themselves, okay, that's fine. It's their role. Not ideal, but fine. But again, harming another PC because of a bad role, please don't. That's, That's just rude. So in conclusion, finding the balance that you prefer of story versus math is a very important topic of consideration. However, just because we do have this title as verses does not mean that you shouldn't consider and use both to find the exact type of game that you enjoy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Tears tell us those a dollar, even that much really helps us out. Support us get benefits such as behind-the-scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord where you'll be able to chat with cast and even a shout out on the show. Find us on social media on Twitter at Riffwake Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwake, and on Reddit on the subreddit r slash Riffwake Podcast. And now send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffs and rules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.